Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and um, before we get started, I just want to make a quick point about um, our site headmirror.com where each podcast is actually um, subspecialty organized by subspecialty and sometimes when you're studying especially systematically a topic area can be hard on apple or spotify as we accrue a lot of episodes so the organization can um, hopefully be helpful on on that site and we also have our surgical video atlas there as well as our uh, dictation templates and console guide and things like that so either way without further ado uh, we'll get started with our episode for today which is the exciting topic of hypoglossal nerve stimulation um, and we're lucky to be joined by Dr. Ryan Seuss, who's actually dual board certified in otolaryngology and uh, sleep medicine. And um, so, Dr. Seuss, thank you so much for being here today. John, thanks for having me. It's really an exciting time to be an otolaryngologist in sleep. And I really appreciate everything that Ted Mirror and ENT in a Nutshell podcast are doing for the field and specifically for sleep. You know, sleep is really a field in its infancy and there's really huge potential more multidisciplinary collaboration, new treatment options on the horizon. And uh, again, it's really exciting for the sleep-trained otolaryngologist now to be at the center of patient care. And I'd love to see all the resources that you guys have put forward to help that cause. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it is, it is very exciting. Um, and, and so maybe if we could just get started with some background on hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Obviously, it's one of the newer treatments in ENT and it's kind of revolutionizing the treatment of sleep medicine or of uh, sleep surgery. Um, so how, how did we get here with this treatment option? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that uh, when you look at the big picture of sleep apnea, and I know you guys have covered this well in other podcasts, sleep apnea is such an incredibly common problem and it really spans all ages, uh, genders, ethnicities, and has many, many different causes, many different presentations. So the reality is one treatment doesn't fit all. And as I mentioned, multimodality or multidisciplinary treatments becoming more and more common. So if you just have the standard tools in the toolbox, like CPAP and dental appliances, and upper airway surgical procedures, you can help a lot of people. But even with those, there are still millions of people that are left without treatment. So this therapy was born out of the clinical need, the millions of people that are still struggling with untreated sleep apnea and the associated quality of life effects and the health risks. And it really has taken the treatment of sleep apnea in a whole new direction. And how did we get to... FDA approval, I understand that happened in, what, what was it, 2014, I think. Um, what did that process look like and how did we get there? Well, things started decades before that. Um, decades of animal and human basic science research uh, essentially showed across the 80s and 90s that stimulating the hypoglossal nerve with electrical stimulation results in increased airflow reduced collapsibility of the upper airway, and anterior displacement of the tongue. And one of the really unique findings that I think really set the stage for the success of the therapy was that stimulation also advanced the soft palate. So just stimulating the genioglossus had a multi-level effect on the upper airway, perhaps akin to what other multi-level treatments like CPAP and maxillomandibular advancement surgery can employ as well. So that basic science data then led to the development of the first commercially available implantable system. 
And this was uh, first implanted about 20 years ago, right around the turn of the century, year 2000 or so. Uh, several patients were implanted with a pilot-type device, and uh, more than half of the patients responded positively. But there were still a lot of questions that needed to be answered. So then there was uh, back into the research lab, engineering, uh, therapy development over the next decade, led to the development of the system that's more well-known now. And that uh, company that's currently FDA-approved is uh, Inspire Medical Systems. And their device went through some initial feasibility studies about a decade ago. And that's where we learned sort of which patient anatomies, which patient uh, phenotypes, um, which body mass indexes, and so forth seem to respond the best. And then all of that feasibility and pilot data then led to the genesis of the uh, INSPIRE STAR trial. The STAR trial was a 22-site multi-center study across the U.S. and Europe. We were one of the sites as well. And it evaluated 126 patients uh, that were implanted with this therapy. These patients all had moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea with a BMI less than or equal to 32 and an absence of concentric collapse on their endoscopy, which we'll talk about more in detail later. And those patients were tracked over the course of five years uh, with good results in both quality of life measures and uh, metrics of uh, sleep apnea. And then all of that STAR trial work then led to the FDA approval in 2014. So the point is, it was really decades of work on the basic science and clinical end by many, many people throughout the field on both the sleep medicine and otolaryngology and industry side of things. Yeah, very cool. Um, I guess next question I want to ask you is surrounding, you know, you started to get into this with just the reality that many patients have trouble using positive airway pressure. And um, even though that is the gold standard, um, but could we talk a little bit more about the typical patient um, with obstructive sleep apnea that you're seeing that might benefit from upper airway stimulation? Yeah, so that's a, a bit of a loaded question in that I really think there are no typical patients. Uh, every patient that comes in is a little bit different, a little different symptoms and presentation and background, their needs and wants with what they're able to uh, tolerate or what they're interested in surgically uh, are all very, very different. Uh, but that said, uh, I think you can categorize, uh, there's a large number of patients that are middle-aged or elderly patients with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea. They're having substantial symptoms uh, either at night or with daytime sleepiness or both, and substantial impact on their long-term health risks, high blood pressure, you know, uncontrolled AFib, uh, coronary disease, et cetera, and they uh, need treatment. So we start, as anybody would, with a full comprehensive sleep medicine history and physical examination. We start with the proper diagnostic sleep testing. And in the majority of cases, these patients start with positive pressure therapy. And uh, most of the listeners are familiar with this being the standard first-line therapy, so I won't belabor the point, but even in great clinical trial environments with proper titration, proper education, close clinical follow-up, CPAP adherence rates are still suboptimal. Less than half the patients actually use it well and use it well enough long-term. 
And the most commonly used and effective second line option, oral appliance therapy or a mandibular advancement device, has limitations as well. A uh, big study a few, just a few years ago showed that over half of the patients that use that therapy, even the ones that use it well and get good results, will develop a change in their bite. And that bite change often requires discontinuation of the therapy. So even in the patients that do well with an oral appliance, down the road, they may need a different solution. And that often brings the patient then in the office to a surgical discussion. And although there are many uh, advancements in pharyngeal surgery and sinonasal surgery and skeletal surgery, there are still a lot of patients that either still have residual disease after those surgical treatments, or it's just the perceived or even real morbidity and risk and recovery of those traditional upper airway surgeries that limits their application to a large portion of the population. I think the prime example are our elderly patients over the age of 65 who don't have good bone structure, who have multiple medical comorbidities, or they're on blood thinners. These are people that are high risk and even just non-accepting of traditional upper airway surgeries. And that's the population, I think, that really fits best with this upper airway stimulation. And you'd mentioned previously that really upper airway stimulation or hypoglossal nerve stimulation is more than just tongue advancement. It's a multi-level surgery in terms of how it works. But I wanted to get into that a little bit deeper. Obviously, there's several components to um, at least the current device Inspire in terms of its um, different working components. And so just mechanistically, how is this working to treat patients' sleep apnea? Sure. So the patients go through a pretty thorough uh, screening criteria, which we can touch on in a bit. But the system itself, once they get to the uh, phase of the implant, uh, consists of an outpatient surgical procedure to install three internal components. There's an electrode on the hypoglossal nerve in the submental or uh, submandibular space. There's a pulse generator uh, that is in a subcutaneous pocket in the right upper chest. And there's a respiratory sensor that's in the fifth or sixth intercostal space on the right side. After a few weeks of healing, the patient is activated in the office, meaning the device is turned on, they're given a remote control, and they're taught how to use it. The basic concept is when the patient goes to bed, they take a remote control and turn the device on. There's a little sleep delay or timer to allow them to fall asleep. And then once they're asleep, the idea is the respiratory sensor in the intercostal space synchronizes with the respiratory pattern and the pulse generator sends then a timed pulse with each breath to the electrode that's attached to the hypoglossal nerve. So with each breath, with each inspiration, the genioglossus muscle and other upper airway dilator muscles get an electrical impulse to advance that tissue forward, hopefully opening the airway. And what is this idea of dysfunctional neuromuscular control um, that occurs or is seen in uh, patients with obstructive sleep apnea? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's part of the reason that upper airway stimulation is unique. Um, most surgical procedures for obstructive sleep apnea, whether it's in the nose, the pharynx, or with jaw structure, really just address anatomy. 
but there's increasing evidence that a portion of OSA patients, maybe at least a third, and particularly those older patients I was mentioning or those with other medical comorbidities, that they actually have non-anatomic issues that have to do with abnormal hypoglossal nerve conduction, reduced tone or tonic activity of the upper airway dilator muscles, an abnormal negative pressure reflex, and just other neuromuscular dysfunction of that protective feedback loop uh, that younger folks tend to have. So perhaps in some way, upper airway stimulation is not only improving anatomy by advancing the tongue and making more space, but maybe it's also augmenting that dysfunctional neuromuscular control of the pharynx that other surgical treatments just aren't able to do. And when we, if we shift now to workup, prior to pursuing um, this treatment option, when we think maybe first about the head and neck exam, um, what are we looking for here when you see these patients in clinic? Sure. I would highlight and sort of build on your question there that this therapy isn't for everybody. Uh, And the reality is no one treatment is for everybody. But the point is that this upper airway stimulation therapy um, has been shown to be beneficial for a select group of patients. And proper screening is really, I think, the first key to getting successful outcomes. So all patients being considered undergo a thorough clinical, polysomnographic, and endoscopic screening. So essentially, they have to have moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, have failed CPAP and or other medical or conservative measures. And on exam, at least initially in the office, we want to make sure there's no other substantial anatomic uh, abnormalities that could be more easily reversed. So those patients with uh, significant adenotonsillar hypertrophy, an upper airway tumor, uh, vocal fold immobility, uh, nasal polyps, severe structural nasal obstruction, those other things would likely be best addressed either first or perhaps in tandem with this uh, therapy. So the initial screening is very important, and it's not only from an upper airway exam standpoint, but it's also from a sleep history standpoint. Remember, in addition to obstructive sleep apnea, there are about 80 other sleep disorders. And one good study from a few years ago showed that at least a third of patients coming into the doctor for obstructive sleep apnea have another sleep disorder too, like insomnia and restless legs and narcolepsy and chronic pain or other factors affecting their sleep. And so when we're really trying to improve their sleep-related symptoms, their daytime fatigue, quality of life measures, we really have to get that full comprehensive sleep history and manage all aspects of their disease. And you mentioned with the STAR trial, the BMI cutoff of 32. Um, How do you think about BMI as you're working someone up for UAS? Sure. Yeah, that's a really tough question. And uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer that there's an exact BMI cutoff. Um, It's really a graded response, I would say, and there's uh, evidence that BMI is all relative to one's craniofacial structure, the container size, and it's also relative to their pattern of fat distribution. So we can see two individuals with the same BMI 
but one has maxillomandibular deficiency where that BMI is going to cause a lot more upper airway obstruction if it's elevated than the person that has a nice wide and forward jaw structure. Similarly, we have patients with the same BMI and some carry it more around the waistline and trunk and have a very thin neck and favorable uh, upper airway anatomy, whereas others have that thick, I'm sure you've seen tree trunk neck um, with substantial fat distribution in their tongue base and around the pharynx. So BMI is just a relative term and it's a bit of a crude estimate, but like UPP data, uh, like oral appliance data, I think you can at least say that in general, the higher the BMI, the lower the success rates. So the 32 came from the early INSPIRE feasibility studies. And when they ran the statistics, a BMI of 32 was roughly where the uh, success rates started to change. So a BMI of less than or equal to 32 was the inclusion criteria that was incorporated into the subsequent STAR trial. And then that was listed on the FDA guidelines after the FDA approval in 2014. Now, what's interesting is that in recent years, with more data now showing um, results in patients with higher BMIs, it appears that BMIs even up to 35 still have good success rates uh, compared to those under 32, as long as they're properly selected. Uh, Medicare, in fact, just recently uh, modified their guidelines to a BMI of 35 or less earlier this year. Okay. Interesting. So you're not, I mean, it's, so it's, if someone's not over 32 or over 36, depending on the phenotype of their obesity, it's not necessarily a, a no-go in terms of pursuing this. That's right. It's not a hard, fast number. It's just one of the many uh, factors that uh, a trained physician has to factor into the equation. And again, it's all relative to the rest of their anatomy and presentation. Sure. Um, if we maybe transitioning now to drug-induced sleep endoscopy, obviously it's a very key in the workup for this. So how, how are we using dice here? Yeah. So, you know, you can only see so much in the office and uh, even in the patients with the worst sleep apnea and loudest snoring, et cetera, uh, they don't snore or obstruct when they're sitting in your office unless you've kept them waiting too long. So, Sleep apnea, uh, as the name implies, is a state-dependent condition. So things change when you're asleep compared to when you're awake. There's loss of upper airway dilator muscle activity. There's changes in the way the brain reacts to CO2 and oxygen, uh, meaning the ventilatory response is blunted. So it's not realistic to sneak into somebody's house and put a scope in their nose when they're snoring and uh, obstructing at home on a typical night. So what we do is we bring them into a controlled setting uh, in the hospital or in the endoscopy suite and do a brief upper airway endoscopic exam using pharmacologic sedatives. So drug-induced sleep endoscopy is not a full night of sleep. It's not designed to look at all positions and sleep stages, nor is it actually real or spontaneous sleep. But what it is, is it's a way to replicate at least the same loss of control of muscle activity that may be seen during non-REM sleep and evaluate the dynamic collapse patterns of the upper airway under those sleep disordered breathing conditions. 
we're trying to look at what's the anatomy, what's the anatomic structure, what are the locations and pattern of collapse. And prior data, uh, particularly in the uh, previous INSPIRE trials, showed that patients who had a complete concentric pattern of retropalatal collapse, so that's a large lateral pharyngeal wall collapse high up in the retropalatal space, those patients had poor outcomes on the feasibility studies with upper airway stimulation. So currently, drug-induced sleep endoscopy is a recommended, perhaps even you could use the word required screening tool to rule out that concentric pattern of retropalatal collapse. And just putting in the context of the VOT classification, so this complete concentric collapse at the velum, is that correct? That's correct. Now, I think there's a lot of other information that you can get from the dice, and uh, you can get a lot more information about airway length and soft palate length and coupling between the tongue protrusion and the soft palate, the epiglottis position, and um, there are many other uh, pieces of information that you can get from a dice, so it's not quite as simple as black and white. Is there a concentric pattern or not? And I think the really skilled and trained sleep surgeon can use that DICE information to better predict outcomes with upper airway stimulation beyond just the simple concentric issue and can use that DICE information also to add other therapies, whether it's positional therapies or mandibular advancement or other treatments. It's my understanding that the lateral wall collapse, if you have significant lateral wall collapse at the oropharynx, that, that might be a negative prognosticator. What is your What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's probably true. I think it's something we don't know, but the patients with very compliant uh, enlarged lateral walls, uh, I think that that's a sign of a substantially more collapsible airway. To some extent, that pattern appears to correlate with BMI. So by screening out some of the higher BMIs. We're probably avoiding a lot of those big lateral wall collapses to begin with. But some of those patients, depending on their fat distribution, the peripharyngeal fat pads, et cetera, that substantial lateral wall collapse is likely something that's going to need transpalatal advancement, full maxillomandibular advancement, or maybe even just combination therapy. Interestingly, we have a number of patients where they've needed both an oral appliance and upper airway stimulation together, or a lateral pharyngoplasty and upper airway stimulation therapy together. So all of these treatment options should not be viewed in isolation, in my opinion. They're all combinable to get to the desired uh, clinical outcome. Any other workup considerations like imaging or that sort of thing? So that's a great question. Uh, In my opinion, I think that's really the future. Um, DICE is a great uh, screening tool and has taught us a lot and helps to sort out a number of uh, anatomic issues, but it's still uh, subjective. It's non-quantitative and uh, it's not spontaneous sleep. And so it has some limitations to it. And I think the future uh, likely holds some kind of dynamic imaging that's more uh, quantitative and perhaps during sleep. Uh, But currently, at this point, there's no standardized uh, imaging that's uh, needed or required. I would say, though, one of the things that's key 
to mention on the sleep end is thorough evaluation of the sleep study. So I think uh, particularly for community ENT docs or um, others, you know, outside of a, a multi-center ENT uh, sleep program, there may be uh, a temptation to just look at the AHI alone, but there's a lot more information and data on those sleep study reports, both the home portable tests as well as the in-lab studies that can help to guide your uh, screening. So one of the screening criteria that's also important for upper airway stimulation therapy is a central apnea index less than 25% of the total AHI. Those patients that have high levels of central apnea and mixed apnea events are the ones that are more likely to have other neurologic or neuromuscular aspects of their sleep disorder breathing pathophysiology. Think perhaps somebody with congestive heart failure and Shane Stokes respiration, uh, stroke, opioid use, or other causes of central sleep apnea. And those uh, types of patients and that high level of central apnea is likely not something that's going to work very well with upper airway stimulation. And just taking everything together, we've kind of briefly touched on this. You even just got into this with the central apneas ideas. But could we just review the current indications for hypoglossal nerve stimulation prior to moving on to the procedure itself? Sure. So the current clinical indications, and this is based off of the FDA approval guidelines back in 2014, are patients with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, so that's less than 25% central and mixed apnea events, with a total AHI between 15 and 65, essentially covering the moderate to severe range. It's not to say it wouldn't work if it was more than 65, but that was the AHI range in the STAR trial, and that's what it was labeled as for use in 2014. In addition to moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, the patients have, have to document that they've failed CPAP, and in our practice, they even fail dental device and weight loss and other conservative measures. And that's just to support and highlight the fact that this is still second-line therapy. It's not a first-line treatment. And finally, they have to undergo that full sleep evaluation to make sure there are no other major medical or sleep confounders in the mix, such as moderate severe heart failure, COPD, other things that would cause other more complex breathing disorders. And finally, the dice with the absence of complete concentric collapse. So perhaps if you wanted to summarize it in one sentence, moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, AHI 15 to 65. CPAP intolerance, and absence of concentric collapse on the dice. And when we talk about performing the procedure itself, if um, we, we actually just as a small head mirror plug, we do have a video highlighting the procedure, kind of goes step-by-step step through it. But if we could just talk through kind of the key points as you see it, if you were counseling um, a patient on it or talking to a resident about it, um, what are the key components of the, the surgery and, um, that you, you think is worth mentioning? Yeah, it's actually a fun and uh, I think very interesting surgery. It's something that most uh, ENTs uh, perhaps are not too familiar with, uh, particularly working in the chest. But once you get over that initial um, 
perhaps a bit of uh, uncomfortableness. Um, it's actually a, a fun procedure. And um, one of the other nice things about this surgery is that uh, we've tried to do a good job of really training in a standardized way surgeons across the U.S. and Europe and really trying to identify and modify to a best practice approach to the surgical procedure. So what I mean by that is unlike palate surgery where there's 20 different modifications and tongue-based surgery where you can do it a dozen different ways, the surgical implant with this Inspire upper airway stimulation device is pretty consistent. So if you get an implant in Los Angeles or New York or Munich, it's the same operation and um, uh, essentially the same surgical steps, which I think is nice for quality control. It's nice for training and it's nice for being able to study our data um, across the field. So the surgical procedure itself, it's about a two hour outpatient surgery. It's done under general anesthesia. There are three incisions, again, one in the submandibular space, one just below the clavicle, and one just below the anterior axillary line, um, sort of inferior to the pectoralis muscle. The first part of the surgical procedure involves identifying the floor of the submandibular triangle and the hypoglossal nerve um, running in its usual course and we dissect the nerve distally to find the fine distal nerve branches. And as you may know, the hypoglossal nerve innervates multiple muscles. So some of those muscles, like the styloglossus and hyoglossus muscles, actually retract the tongue posteriorly and would actually obstruct the airway. We don't want those. Whereas the nerve branches going to the genioglossus or even geniohyoid protrude the tongue reduce PCRIT, open the airway. So how do we determine that? Well, at the beginning of the case, we place fine wire electrodes in those different muscles and use a nerve monitor during the procedure. So between our anatomic landmarks, as well as intraoperative nerve stimulation, we can then identify the branches that selectively protrude the tongue while excluding all retractor branches. And I think that's really one of the keys to setting yourself up for a successful implant and successful outcome. The electrode then is placed selectively around those protrusor branches only, including the C1 branch to the geniohyoid, while excluding all the retractors. So after you get the electrode in place, then what's next? Yeah, so then we move down to the chest area. And uh, it's a simple, roughly five centimeter pocket that's created underlying the subcutaneous fat just below the clavicle for placement of the pulse generator, similar to a cardiac device that would be placed on the other side. And then finally, we dissect down onto the lateral chest wall to the underlying intercostal space. And we create a, a little pocket between the external and internal intercostal muscles and slide a little respiratory sensor in between the external and internal intercostal muscles with the sensor facing the pleura. Those leads then, the stimulation electrode lead from the neck and the sensing lead from the lateral chest are both tunneled into the right upper chest pocket, connected to the device, and then we bring a sterile telemetry unit into the field to test the device. And this is really the final confirmation then 
that the respiratory sensor is functioning, that stimulation is resulting in a brisk, uninhibited protrusion of the tongue, making sure that we didn't get any of those retractor branches in, and just testing the other electrical functionality of the device. The three incisions are then closed up, um, uh, some bandages are placed, and the patient goes home as an outpatient. I'd say one of the big differences between this therapy and traditional pharyngeal and skeletal surgery for sleep apnea is the recovery. The majority of these patients, again, go home the same day. There's no hospital stay. Remember, there's no airway manipulation or uh, surgery itself. So the risk of airway edema or post-operative complications in that regard is essentially zero. And the majority of these patients go back to regular diet immediately, and they do not take prescription narcotics. And that's a key thing because our sleep apnea patients are at risk even more than the general population for taking opioids. So being able to do this as an outpatient, no opioids, minimal downtime, no diet restrictions is really one of the attractive features, I think, that, a lot, that draws a lot of patients to this treatment. And you said you're typically activating the device around one month? That's right. So we let the healing occur, uh, let some of the edema around the electrode and, and incisions uh, reduce. We bring them back to the office for an activation visit where uh, myself and my staff uh, work with the patient to activate it. We set all the electrical programming. And this is another key that uh, is just starting to come out in the literature now and we're developing guidelines on because uh, initially it was just, well, turn it on and kind of see what happens and maybe make some adjustments uh, if needed. But now we know there are different results in different patients as you modify the electrode pattern and the amplitude and the pulse width and the frequency and so many other features of the stimulation itself. So once we program the device, we give the patients about a six-week period or so to acclimate to the therapy. We want them to start using it all night, every night, and slowly advance the stimulation upwards until they start to feel symptomatic improvement, but still are able to comfortably use the device. If they go too high, it's, there's no harm per se, but in some patients, if the stimulation level is too strong, it may make it difficult to fall asleep or it could potentially even wake them up or make it difficult to return to sleep with the therapy running, which is then sort of counterproductive to what we're trying to do. So we slowly titrate the level up to their comfort level and their symptomatic response. We see them back in the office and then we get a data download now out of the device. Almost akin to a CPAP data download, we can now get a download out of the upper airway stimulation generator that gives us a report of usage and how many hours they're using it each night and uh, usage trends. And we can see, oh, they turned it up here this week and then their trend was they started to decrease use and pause the therapy more. Um, so we can use some of that data download information just like you would a CPAP for troubleshooting and therapy adjustments, which ultimately then optimize the outcomes. And I think that's an important point to uh, highlight here is that again, unlike other traditional surgeries, this upper airway stimulation device is all titratable and modifiable. 
So unlike a surgery where you do the surgery and it's sort of one and done, you check a sleep study in three to six months and see what you got. With this therapy, it's almost infinitely adjustable. And so um, it's not just on or off. We assess outcomes with follow-up sleep studies. And if we're not quite where we want to be, we can use advanced sleep study titration, almost like a CPAP. We can use endoscopic or dice information to further tailor the electrical settings. Um, we can adjust comfort features on the device to improve adherence. And there's a lot of uh, adjustability. And that's really important because, as you know, sleep apnea is a chronic long-term condition. right? It's not an acute problem. It's more like hypertension. It's more like asthma. It's something that you have to manage across the lifespan. And this device currently has a battery life of around 10 uh, to 12 years, which then, you know, is nice because this allows you to modify the settings and adjust if the patient gains weight or loses weight, et cetera, to uh, optimize their therapy across a longitudinal care model. And, and talking about the post-operative course here, how do we think about adverse events in UAS? Is, is there much talk on that or what, what are the main risks, I guess? Absolutely. Um, you know, with any treatment for obstructive sleep apnea, we have to look at not only the potential effectiveness and gain, but the risk and morbidity. Going back to one of the earlier comments we talked about with pharyngeal and skeletal surgery, one of the reasons people don't sign up for those things is because of the potential risk in, in their swallowing and pain and downtime and so forth. So we have to look at that as well. With this procedure, there are some surgical risks during the implant, and there are some therapy risks with using the treatment long-term. So the surgical risks with implanting the device, you have typical risks with any incision of bleeding or infection. Those have generally been published at around less than 1%. There's also a risk of nerve injury, and there have been some reports of transient hypoglossal nerve weakness, which could affect speech or swallowing. Um, and there's also uh, some report of transient marginal mandibular weakness. Now, I think with experience and as the learning curve uh, goes up with uh, at least five or 10 of these procedures under your belt, the, the incidence of those are, are quite low. And again, the clinical trials, as well as my experience, suggest even when they do occur, they're transient uh, not uh, permanent nerve injury. And then finally, there's a risk of pneumothorax in placement of the respiratory sensor in the intercostal space. Uh, again, we try to target that space between the external and internal intercostal muscle. But if that sensor is placed too deep below the internal intercostal muscle, it could result in pneumothorax, which would require obviously uh, treatment and potentially hospitalization uh, for that. Now, once patients get through the initial post-op recovery, and again, serious complications uh, like some of those I mentioned, I think are very uh, uncommon. 99% of the people seem to get through the implant itself without those uh, issues. There are some issues that I think are more common with therapy adverse effects. And that's really where I think one of the next frontiers lies with this therapy. Just like any other medical device, you know, there are patients that are going to be affected by use of the device itself. One of the advantages of traditional surgery is there's no device that you have to use. 
And many of these people that get to an ENT surgeon, they can't stand a mask on their face or the noise of a CPAP machine, and they can't stand a dental device in their mouth. So those patients are already sort of self-selected or pre-selected as being difficult uh, to use um, any kind of medical device. And this upper airway stimulation is a medical device. So they have to take the remote and turn it on. And after a prescribed amount of minutes, that therapy is going to start stimulating, particularly for patients with anxiety, uh, insomnia, um, and other sleep and medical issues. The stimulation itself, even though it's not painful, when that stimulation is running, we do see patients then that their insomnia is worse. They have more trouble falling or staying asleep because of the stimulation. And although that's not something we traditionally think of as a post-op complication, I think it is an adverse event that uh, has to be really uh, looked at uh, in detail with this therapy because long-term consistent use of the device is critical to the outcomes. And again, that gets back to why we're really trying to bolster our post-implant therapy management protocol. We're working now to develop a long-term management strategy that centers around the country will be able to use. So if a patient is experiencing X, Y, or Z problem with the therapy and usage, we can then prescribe kind of a targeted troubleshooting to try to modify that and uh, ultimately make their use and experience better. Now, related question to, you know, patient medical comorbidities. What do you do about the patient that has chronic cervical spine disease that might need, you know, future MRIs um, or someone that needs a cardiac device placement? How do you think about these special scenarios? Yeah, those are great questions. And it gets back to one of the earlier conversations we were having that every one of these patients is different. Everyone has unique issues, um, whether it be a cardiac device, uh, a breast implant, prior radiation in the area. Uh, a need for MRIs, uh, comorbid sleep disorders, et cetera. So yeah, the this is not, you know, just for our ENT surgery listeners here, this is not just a surgical technician thing. Um, I think that uh, particularly, say, with UPP 20, 30 years ago, the ENTs were kind of viewed as like the surgical technicians just doing the surgery and then sending them out the door. This therapy in particular really involves a longitudinal care model where you really have to screen patients appropriately, and then you have to manage them and adjust things in the long term. So the implant itself is actually the easy part. (laughs) It's all the pre-op and post-op assessment uh, that's really uh, critical. So on that front, yeah, uh, one of the limitations with the current device is there are some MRI restrictions. Now, the latest model of the device that's been out for about the last three years is compatible with head and neck MRIs and extremity MRIs, but it is not compatible with MRIs in the thorax area, the chest and abdomen. That may change down the road, but if you have somebody that has a unique cardiac issue or um, thoracic or lumbar spine issue that requires regular MRIs, then this therapy is probably not for them. The other thing I would point out is, you know, unlike other surgical procedures, this is reversible. So if 
for some reason, either the therapy was not working for the patient or if the patient needed an MRI for some life-threatening issue, a malignancy or something like that, this device can be removed. And transitioning to outcomes and treatment success, um, obviously a little bit of a difficult discussion in the context of sleep apnea. It's a little bit controversial how we define that. But if you're counseling a patient or, you know, talking to a resident about this, how do you think about success in hypoglossal nerve stimulation? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. I mean, we could probably have an entire podcast just on defining surgical success. And that's often a topic of controversy at meetings. But I think if you really want the big picture view, the reason we treat sleep apnea and the reason we try to help these patients is number one, symptom and quality of life, quality of life improvement. And number two, reduction or elimination of cardiovascular risk. So we're trying to improve their quality of life and reduce their health risks. And for the most part, we know the health risks are associated with moderate to severe sleep apnea. So when I have these discussions with the patients, and what I think is most important when you take this information out of the literature, is looking at patient-reported outcomes in combination with sleep app or sleep study metrics that get people out of the moderate to severe range and into at least the mild or normal range. So the AHI does not have to be zero, as some may have been uh, taught in the past. Um, that's not the goal of treatment. The AHI is not the disease itself. We're not trying to make a number on a test zero. But what we're trying to do is big picture, improve these people's symptoms and quality of life, and get them out of that moderate to severe range. So if you translate that sort of view to, say, the STAR trial reports, uh, we published the five-year STAR trial data in the last uh, year or two. And depending on which criteria you use, whether it's AHI reduction or sleep-related quality of life metrics or daytime sleepiness metrics, anywhere between 65 and 80% of people achieve that designation. So that's what we tell people is uh, roughly uh, two-thirds or three-quarters of patients will achieve that result with this therapy alone. But remember, we can add positional therapy. We can add weight loss. We can add upper airway surgery, lowering of nasal resistance, um, and other adjunctive therapies to then further augment the results. And one other question I wanted to ask you about was just kind of the frontier where, where um, this procedure is heading. I, you know, one of the recent studies I saw was on in patients with Down syndrome, for instance, because um, classically this is approved in adults, but maybe perhaps at younger ages in this population that might be a procedure to consider or things like that. Any, any comment on, on expansion of indications going forward? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I was fortunate enough to be part of the uh, team that did the uh, first pediatric implant uh, about five years ago. And uh, since then, there's now a multi-center FDA-approved trial across the U.S. that's enrolling adolescent Down syndrome uh, sleep apnea patients for this type of therapy. And so that's just one example of another patient population that may be uniquely suited to benefits from this kind of therapy. Down syndrome patients uh, first 
and foremost, have pretty poor outcomes with CPAP, even worse adherence rates than you see in the general population. The reports of persistent OSA after adenotonsillectomy in Down syndrome are very high. At least half of the patients that have their tonsils and adenoids removed still have severe sleep apnea. And furthermore, Down syndrome is unique in other ways from the patient perspective in that many of them have congenital heart disease, and many of them already have learning and cognitive issues, both of which are affected by untreated sleep apnea. So the patient need, I think, is even higher from a quality of life and heart standpoint, and the success of the traditional treatments is even lower. So the upper airway stimulation appears to be a way to help uh, that subset of the population, and the early results look very promising where parents are able to activate the device and the uh, child does not have to wear a mask or any other device um, to achieve their uh, sleep apnea control. So that's one area, but I think there's many other areas. Um, we really need to look at specific subpopulations of patients, whether it's with insomnia, postmenopausal women, um, different BMIs, different skeletal phenotypes, and really start to uh, fine tune uh, the results. One of the things that we're doing globally is we have a registry set up. It's called the Adhere Registry, and there's already about 2,000 patients enrolled in it. Um, I presented the first 1,000 patients at our academy meeting last fall, and with that big data, and the goal is to ultimately enroll 5,000 patients in this registry, we're really able to collect better and more useful data, I think, to further improve the um, uh, treatment success. Well, I think that about wraps up the questions that I had for the episode. Was there anything that we didn't touch on that you think is worth mentioning? Well, I would just say in summary, um, you know, the early results of upper airway stimulation are very positive. The therapy is still young. We still have a long way to go. But uh, I do think uh, in the big picture, it's been one of the biggest breakthroughs in sleep apnea treatment in decades. It still has its limitations. It's still not applicable to all patients with sleep apnea by, by any means. And, and as I mentioned, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. But one of the things that I would just throw out there is that one of the unanticipated benefits that we've found of having an implant program at our institution is the trickle-down effect within the institution and the positive impact it's had on our overall health system. So having this new therapy available and this implant program at our institution, it's brought so many sleep apnea patients out of the woodwork who were previously just jaded, frustrated with the current treatment options, and just lost the follow-up. And it's brought them back into the physician. And for many of the patients, I would say the majority of patients that come to see me for upper airway stimulation specifically, they don't actually end up getting that treatment. But by bringing them back into the health system, we're able to get them back into their PCP for blood pressure management. We're able to then engage them with weight loss specialists. As ENTs, we're able to get their sinonasal problems managed, and then now maybe we can get them back into the lab for a CPAP titration. Or then maybe we get them in to the dentist for an oral appliance, something that they had maybe never heard about. Or we get their other sleep disorders or other uh, breathing disorders addressed. 
So I just want to point out that bigger picture here is that even in, in patients who see this as an option and that's what brings them into the doctor, from a bigger picture public health perspective, it's actually really helped uh, across the entire health system to get these patients uh, re-engaged and better treated. Dr. Seuss, thank you so much for your time and coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me and good luck with the future. Thank you. So now I'll transition to the summary portion of the episode. Um, Hypoglossal nerve stimulation is obviously one of the new and exciting treatment options in um, the management of patients with obstructive sleep apnea that is um, coming, that available or done by otolaryngologists currently. I'm a chief FDA approval just recently in 2014, kind of in conjunction with the landmark STAR trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Currently, the INSPIRE device is the only FDA-approved medical um, device for the uh, for upper airway stimulation that is titratable technology to adjust and that you can work with with the patient's sleep apnea postoperatively to titrate it to the optimal effect. It, it works in a couple different ways. It's really a multi-level surgery. It's more than just advancing the tongue and addresses beyond just an anatomical obstruction, also addresses a pathophysiologic idea of dysfunctional neuromuscular control of breathing that occurs in um, patients with obstructive sleep apnea. The workup includes obtaining a formal sleep study, as well as um, obtaining drug-induced sleep endoscopy. And on drug-induced sleep endoscopy, you're looking for complete concentric collapse at the velum, as that would be a contraindication to pursuing um, hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Other contraindications or considerations to just keep in mind is patient's BMI. Um, SAR trial had a BMI of 32 and recently expanded by Medicare to 35. Not that those are binary cutoffs, but something to be mindful that on that spectrum of patient's BMI that the efficacy of the treatment might um, wane as the BMI increases. Other considerations are potential need for future MRI of the thorax or abdomen other causes of sleep apnea, patients having less than 25% of um, their their apnea is related to central or mixed apneas. And then the um, range with which AHI is currently, of AHI that is the device is currently approved for is 15 to 65, so moderate to severe um, obstructive sleep apnea. And just globally speaking, it's tough to define, but when thinking of counseling patients, Roughly two-thirds to three-quarters of patients achieve, quote-unquote, post-operative success um, when thinking about quality of life, subjective sleepiness, and then as well as polysomnogram-related um, outcome measures. So, and Now I'll transition to the question portion of the podcast. Um, mechanistically, so first question, me- mechanistically, how does upper airway stimulation work to address, address the upper airway obstructing and, obstruction and obstructive sleep apnea? So answer here is it's the selective neurostimulation of the terminal branches responsible for upper airway dilation um, of the from the hypoglossal nerve and really kind of how this all fits together is there's a respiratory sensor that dis, that detects a change in interthoracic pressure with inspiration um, stimulates the hypoglossal nerve that causes anterior displacement of the tongue and soft palate which uh, helps to enlarge and stabilize the retrolingual um, retro epiglottic and retropalatal um, airway regions. Uh, second question, what key diagnostic study is required in the preoperative workup of upper airway stimulation and what finding of this study, it, what finding is this study aiming to identify? 
So answer is drug-induced sleep endoscopy. And what you're looking for on drug-induced sleep endoscopy is complete concentric collapse at the velum. Third question, what are the current, third and final question, what are the current indications for upper airway stimulation? So the current indications for upper airway stimulation or hypoglossal nerve stimulation, um, it's considered a second line therapy, second to positive airway pressure, most commonly CPAP or APAP. Um, for patients with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea, AHI ranging between 15 and 65, who have have a documented failed trial of positive airway pressure therapy. Um, can also not have complete concentric collapse on drug-induced sleep endoscopy. There's BMI considerations, for instance, of Medicare uh, BMI of 35. Um, it's labeled for a BMI under 35. The You cannot have on your polysomnogram um, AHIs or apneas that are caused by more than 25% of apnea is caused by central or mixed apneic events. And then also just consider your need for future MRI of the thorax and abdomen given current device limitations. That'll about wrap things up for today. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.